This morning's reading is Romans 8, verses 19 to 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that in your sovereign plan you have brought us here this morning uh, to sit under your word, uh, to hear by your spirit, and to respond in faith. So I ask, Lord, that those things would be accomplished uh, among us and through us as we leave this place as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I was hopeful because I saw Dave got a good response, so I thought I would, you know, venture out. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, This week, we're continuing in our We Are Christ City series, where we look at what it means to be the church. The church is not a building. It's a group of people. uh, To be the church in different spheres of our lives. This morning, we are talking about caring for creation. Caring for creation. And I know some of you waited uh, eagerly for the Sunday's message. On December 26, 1966, Lynn White Jr., a medieval historian in science and technology, he presented a paper for the American Association for the Advancement of Science entitled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. The objective, according to White, was to get to the bottom of why we as a people have treated and continue to treat our world so poorly. White believed that he had found the answer, and he said this, The victory of Christianity over paganism was the great psychic revolution in the history of our culture. By destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. White also said that evening, especially in its Western form, Christianity is the most anthropocentric, that's man-centered religion, the world has seen. The burden of our ecological crisis, a crisis that has very much persisted since uh, White first gave this talk in 1966, according to White, lies at the feet of Christianity, at the feet of followers of Jesus. Christianity, with its emphasis on, on, on the person who is over and above the creation, the, the creator. Christianity, with its emphatic rejection of pagan animism, that God is not in his creation, but above and separate from it. Christianity, with its overall thrust of superiority, White says. Now, as you can imagine, the address and its subsequent publishing the following year, 1967, it caused quite a a commotion amongst Christians. And given that it was the 1960s, some wondered whether their faith in Jesus was compatible with their newfound passion in this thing called the environmental movement. They wondered, as one pastor asked in a talk, can faith be green? Can faith be green? Is it, as white and others would have us believe, that true Christianity is incompatible with active care for the created world? Or, or 
Is there a way in which our Christian faith uniquely gives us the foundation and motivation to care for the world around us? Moreover, does our faith compel us to care about the world around us? Is this a matter of obedience, Christ City, in following Jesus? Well, today I want to argue that Scripture paints a picture of creation not just as the setting or the backdrop on which the the events of the Bible and our lives take place, but that creation itself is participating in this redemptive story, this good news story of the Bible. It is an active member. To do that, I want us to consider three things, three things this morning. First, the foundations of creation. Here we'll look at the Genesis account and see what is foundationally true about us and the world that we live in and the relationship we find at the very beginning. So the foundations of creation. Second, the subjection of creation. And and here we'll ask again, really simply, how has sin and the entrance of sin into our world changed our relationship with the rest of the created world? So first, the foundations, second, the subjection, and then finally, we'll see the redemption of creation. How does the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus impact how we think about caring for creation today? Does it impact it, and how can we go forward? Well, if you have your Bibles open, let's go to Genesis 1. Last week, we began in Genesis. This week, we're beginning in Genesis. It's good that we start there. What foundational truths do we find in Genesis when it comes to our relationship with the creation? The first is this. Really simple, but very, very, very important. God is the creator, and we are the creation. God is the creator, and we are the creation. Genesis 1, verse 1. Maybe you've read this before, but it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The teaching is, is simple, but it could not be more foundational to our time together this morning. God is distinct and separate from his creation. Now, this doesn't mean, as we'll see, that he's uninvolved or indifferent or, or not near to what he has made. Simply that creation is not God and God is not in his creation. Let me say that again. Creation is not God and God is not in his creation. And so it's not pantheism, where God is the world and the world is God. And and Lynn White is right. It's not animism, where each rock, river, and rabbit have within them a piece of of the deity. Distinct to the Christian worldview, and if you're new uh, this morning, new to Jesus, new altogether, this is really key. Distinct to the Christian way of viewing our world is believing and receiving that we are not God and God is not us. Nor... Do we believe that things came here by accident or chance? God is described in Romans 4 as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I saw a blog post this week entitled, uh, Seven Steps to Manifesting Anything You Want. And there was a little hyphen and said, including money. So I I clicked on it naturally. (laughs) Contrary to what this blogger says, you and I cannot speak things into existence. Try it right now. Say rabbit and see if a rabbit appears. We we can't do it. 
We, we can't do it. We cannot manifest something out of nothing. But Christian, hear me. God can. And he has. The glory of the creation account we find in Genesis is that God, by the power of his word, by the power of his word, gloriously speaks all of life into existence. He is the creator and we are the creation. That's our first foundational idea. And the second foundational idea is this, that we, you and I, human beings, we are one creature among many. We are one creature among many. We've seen who God is. He alone is the creator. Now we need to learn who we are. If you look at your Bibles, as we come to the sixth day of creation, God has already created and separated light from darkness, the waters from the sky, the land from the waters. He's already spoken into existence uh, plants and fruit trees, the stars and the moon, the birds and the creatures of the sea. And on day six, notice this, God creates both, both, Land creatures and us. Genesis 1, 24 to 26, it reads like this. Follow with me. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice a few things here. First, six times, six times creation is declared as good before you and I even come upon the scene. Before we're there, it's good. And when we do arrive, notice, we do not have a day to ourselves. It's not like the special human day. No. (laughs) We are included in the sixth day along with the other land animals. As one scholar noted, it's the Sabbath rest on the seventh day that, that completes creation, that brings it to its fullness. It's not our creation on the sixth day. Further, if we're to continue reading in Genesis 2, we find that humanity and animals come about, are produced, you could say, in the same way. We are both living beings formed from the earth, from from the dust. Look at humanity's account in Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now the account of animals, just a few verses later. Now out of the ground, notice that, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. It's why when we come to Exodus 20, in Exodus 20 we find the command for Sabbath rest. But the command for Sabbath rest in Exodus 20 is not just for people, but for their animals as well. For their animals as well. People should rest, but the animals who help them, who make all this possible, should rest as well. Writing in response to Lynn White in in 1970, so a few years later, Francis Schaeffer, he's an author and a theologian, uh, he summarizes it well when he says, All things, all things, including man, are equal in their origin as far as creation is concerned. Biblically speaking, Hear this, Christ City. 
We are not gods to do with creation whatever we would like. We are not gods to do with creation whatever we would like. We are, and again, we'll, we'll nuance this in just a bit. We are, though, one amongst the creatures. And as creatures, we learn that the creation does not belong to us. And no more so does my house belong to the table that sits in it, right? Neither does creation, and hear this as well, fundamentally exist for us. We are limited. Creation belongs to the Lord, and it foundationally exists for His glory, His namesake. In in Psalm 104, I'd encourage you, read Psalm 104 this week. In Psalm 104, we read of the wonder of the created world, mountains, trees, animals, all this stuff that has nothing to do with us. Has nothing to do with us. We read in Colossians 1.16, Paul is speaking of Jesus. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Then he says, listen, all things were created through him and for him. Friends, we have to begin, as we talk about creation care, from this place of humility today. We have to. We are limited creatures, and that's a good thing. See, it's only when we realize that we're limited, finite creatures from the dust, just like the animals, that you and I can watch shows like, like uh, Planet Earth and stand in awe. That you and I can drive up the Sea to Sky Highway, as I did a few days ago, and, and just like try not to get distracted from driving, right? It, it, you and I can stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and be moved to wonder. That's the whole point. Again, we'll see in a moment how we're different from the rest of creation. But an overemphasis on how we are different can lead to us thinking as ourselves as uncreated, limitless, sovereign beings who, like God, speak their world into existence. Simply just say it out, manifest it. Who look at the created world and think, you know what would look better on that, you know, the edge of the Grand Canyon there? Some condos. We can do better. Let's improve. And that's just not true. Our second foundational idea is that we are one creature among many. Now we're going to nuance this a bit. The third foundational idea that we have to establish is that though one creature among many, bearing the image of God, we've been given the task to keep and rule over creation. We do, Christ said to hear me, have a special role in caring for creation that nothing, that no other created thing has. Genesis 1, 26. Let's read all the way to verse 28 this time. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We said this last week and we'll say it again. We are made in the image of God. We are God's image bearers, humans. We are his kingly representatives over creation. It's not dogs, it's not whales, it's not dolphins, I don't care how smart they are. It's not chimpanzees, it's us. 
And as God's image bearers, it is our job to have dominion or rule and subdue. And this is precisely where we lose people like Lynn White, where we lose people like Paul Watson, the founder of Greenpeace. Ruling and subduing, even in their original Genesis 1 context, are harsh words that have with them overtones of of military conquest. But that's not necessarily how we are to understand them in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The basic idea here is that creation is wild. It's wild. If you've ever been to a remote area of the planet before, you know that you have to plan well and and think wisely. Otherwise, what will happen? You'll die, right? You'll die. I remember growing up, I would do canoe trips in Algonquin Park. And and there are some things you can do in the city because you know you're close to a hospital that you can't do in Algonquin Park because what will happen? You'll die. And I almost died a few times. It's a different story. The ruling and subduing of Genesis 1 is not the unrestrained pillaging of creation, but is more like the restraining and ordering needed to bring a wild creation, a wild creation under control in order for everything and everyone on this planet to flourish. I've used this example before, but if you like to garden, you know uh, that the best gardening technique is not to just let your, your garden kind of do whatever it wants, right? I'm just let the garden lead here, you know. If it wants to do carrots, we'll do carrots. If it wants to do weeds, we'll do weeds. It's, it's fine, right? No. You, you tend to your garden, right? I, I think so. I've watched people garden before. You tend to your garden. You put your maybe nets up so the birds can't get at it. Right, You plant in, in, in nice rows in order that everything might flourish. It's a restraining, the, the ordering. Uh, to this end, one scholar writes this. The earth does not just need to be kept, but also controlled. It needs further shaping beyond what God has done in the original creative moments of the cosmos. So, this is why, as Christians, we must emphasize both our similarity with the rest of creation. Hey, we're created beings. Be humble, Christ City. We're created beings. The world does not exist for us and not for our glory. At the same time, we also, as Christians, must emphasize our dissimilarity. And yet, we alone, we alone humans, are image bearers tasked with bringing order to the chaos and the wildness that we find in the rest of creation. Now, I love how the biblical picture angers both the hippie and the industrialist. They're both mad right now, right? Because we've just said, like, listen, hippie, uh, like, like, we are made in the image of God, and we are special, and we are unique, and we do have a unique role to play. So the hippie's mad. But the industrialist is also mad because we're like, listen, industrialist, uh, we're also just one of the creatures. It doesn't exist for our glory. We cannot pillage the earth for our gains however we would like. The hippie and the industrialist are both angry this morning. The first pages of the Bible give us the foundation for understanding the created world and our role in it. That's the first thing. But as we saw when we recapped the story last week, sin and brokenness soon enters the equation. We turn now to consider the subjection of creation. How does sin... Rebellion against God. How does sin impact our relationship with creation? In Genesis 3, we find a simple thought being put to the woman by the serpent. He says this. 
And he said to the woman, did God actually say, did God actually say, the fall of humanity has its roots in our failure to believe God and his good ordering of things. We wonder, could we do better? What if I were in charge? Before sin, the ruling and subduing was once understood in light of our own creatureliness, our own position as mere representatives. But ruling and subduing, unhinged, from that foundational truth leads to exactly what Lynn White is talking about. And on that point, he's right. It is the violence, unrestrained, ruling and subduing that would only be appropriate, not for creatures, but for a creator, which is exactly what we've made ourselves out to be. So our relationship, I don't know if you've noticed this, our relationship with creation has changed. And in Genesis 9, 1 to 3, we read that animals, animals who would once willingly come to Adam to be named, will now be fearful of all man as God gives us them to eat for food. In, in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4, we see that for Adam, for Cain, and all their descendants, work, work, work will now be done in the context of brokenness, hard labor, and potential fruitlessness. Creation itself will feel the effects of our sin. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament prophets before, but there's this interesting thing happening in the Old Testament prophets where we see Israel's failure to do justice and their sin exposed, and it has, the prophets tell us, ramifications. Ramifications, consequences, not only for other people, but consequences as well for the created land. Hear what the prophet Jeremiah says. Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, here's the reason. Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. There's a relationship between our sin our own failure to do justice, to, to walk as God has instructed us, and, and the way creation has responded, the way creation looks indeed is felt. In all this, we must remember that the creation itself, the entrance of sin does not make creation bad or disposable. The entrance of sin does not make creation bad or disposable. It is not a chipped cup that we can throw away because it's now unusable. Rather, it is a creation that is uh, subjected in need of liberation. Earlier you heard Romans eight nineteen to 23, and there Paul began like this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Creation was ours to care for, a responsible ruling and subduing, but we failed. And with our fall and failure, so goes creation. Quite literally, we have taken it down with us. So much so that Paul can now say that we both, we both, he says, all of creation and we ourselves groan for liberation. This brings us to the third component of creation care, the redemption of creation. Why is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus good news for both us and the created world. In that same passage in Romans 8, Paul continues to say this. Look with me. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Just as both groups, both groups, hear me Christ City, the creation and the children of God are subject to the effects of sin, so too will both groups, Both groups, the creation and the children of God, know one day, fully and completely, what it is to be set free. How will this happen? Hopefully this isn't a surprise to you. Through the gospel. Through the good news. We're told that the death and resurrection of Jesus in a new and physical body is the foreshadowing. Is the foreshadowing what is to come for us. For you and for me, Christ City. A new physical resurrection body for all eternity. Likewise, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not only about the redemption of people and the burning of the planet. No, there is to be a complete peace, a complete harmony, a complete reconciliation in the renewed heavens and new earth. This holistic redemption is what we read about in Colossians 1, 19-20. Paul writes there, For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a reconciliation that will be pronounced at the end of the age, at the return of Jesus, just as God spoke to us through John. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not... I am making new things, but I am renewing, making new what has always existed. The good news, the gospel, is for us and the earth. It is for us and the earth. There is a full and complete redemption coming for all creation. And we have to ask is, so what do we do now? What do we do now? As we prepare to respond, I want to speak to three groups of people. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a self-proclaimed environmentalist and you're not a follower of Jesus. First, I want to encourage you in your work. But also, I want to ask a question. Do you see the more compelling picture given for environmentalism by the Bible? Do you see the more compelling picture given for creation care by the Bible? Modern environmentalists rightly so, are largely driven by pragmatic reasons. If we don't do this, we won't survive, so we need to to do this, right? Driven by pragmatic reasons. But Christians, Christians have the joy, indeed the delight, of being driven by a higher reason. Again, Francis Schaeffer, in his response to Lynn White, he wrote this. But I must be clear that I am not loving the tree or whatever is standing in front of me for a pragmatic reason. Now, it will have a pragmatic result, the very pragmatic result that the men involved in ecology are looking for. But as a Christian, I do not do it for the practical or pragmatic results. 
I do it because it is right and because God is the maker. And then suddenly things drop into place. Laboring for the preservation and flourishing of creation not only makes sense as a Christian, Christ City, I want us to hear this, it makes most sense as a Christian. Most sense. You were created to humbly bring order to chaos, to tend to creation, that it, along with humanity, might flourish. You were created to do this as an outworking of what Jesus has done for you. The wholeness that Jesus purchased on the cross for you. A wholeness that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can grab hold of today by faith. You are to bring that wholeness to every sphere of your life. And I can't think of a more compelling narrative for creation care than that. That's the first group. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you're a Christian. And again, you're a self-proclaimed hardcore environmentalist. Again, let me encourage you, indeed applaud you, for recognizing your own humble creatureliness. But perhaps, and maybe not, but perhaps, you need to be reminded that made in the image of God, Humanity is special. Humanity is special. The other week I saw this ad on the back of a bus. Maybe you've seen it. uh, By the Vancouver uh, Humane Society. And there's a picture of a cow and a picture of a dog. And there's an arrow pointing to the cow that says food. And an arrow pointing to the dog that says friend. And then underneath, they ask the question, Have you ever asked yourself why? Deep stuff, Vancouver Humane Society. What was being implied, I I gathered, was that if you wouldn't eat your golden retriever, why would you eat a cow? And really, it's like a really easy answer, isn't it? Like, cow is delicious. (laughs) And I haven't had golden retriever, but I don't know, it doesn't look that good. So on one hand, that's the obvious answer. On the other hand, there's a theological belief at play here, isn't there? A belief that says that we are only and totally creatures. That we are entirely the same as animals. That this is just my friend, he's my dog. And really, if we're talking about Vancouver for a second, we have a bit of an anthropomorphic love of animals, don't we? we? There's bakeries for animals. There's spas for animals. They're the same as us, just furrier, right? I say that jokingly, but really, we, we should look at that for a second. Maybe that's a different sermon. We need to think wisely about where our food comes from. Absolutely. That's part of responsible ruling and subduing. But we must not make cows and dogs, the mountains or, or rivers into something that they are not. The invitation today is to care for creation in a way that it was intended. And in doing so, we become more fully human. We become who we were created to be. We must be cautious then what quote-unquote green organizations and products that we throw our weight behind. We need to ask the hard question, what is the underlying theological belief at play here? We have to ask that hard question. That's the second group of people. Last group. I suspect, I suspect there are still some of you, because I know some of you, there are still some of you who think creation care is peripheral. Like, really, when pushed, like, this is a nice sermon, but that's about it. You don't think it's that important. Now, I doubt that this is your conscious thought, 
But at the root of that sort of thinking is a belief that you and I are little gods. That you and I are little gods. That we are unlimited creatures who can do with creation whatever we would like. The call this morning, if this is you, is to see your own finite creatureliness. That you and I are mere creatures made from the dust, just like animals, with the noble task of representing God's good rule here on earth as we rule and subdue responsibly. Perhaps we have drank deeply of our cultural waters that put ourselves at the center of the narrative. That see all of creation, people, animals, and land as things to be used and abused to our own advantage. Things to aid us in our never-ending quest for comfort and convenience. Further, this entire conversation has become so politicized that we're unable to see the clear ways in which our wildly irresponsible ruling and subduing is destroying God's creation. Let me remind all of us of this. This is God's world. This is God's world. It exists for his glory and not for the glory of man. This is not a leftist or tree hugger or hippie position. It is a thoroughly biblical one. To all of us, we must think deeply about what it means to be creatures who rule and subdue wisely and responsibly. Like much of the Christian life, there aren't clear guidelines here. How we do creation care is complex and requires patience, understanding, and learning. But if there's one thing we can agree on as we go into our time of response is that we can no longer pretend that creation care is periphery to our Christian discipleship. If we are to love others well, if we are to be a witness in a city like Vancouver that has as one of its highest values, the earth and creation care, if we are to love others well, we must show in word and deed a message of good news that proclaims the renewal of all things. Of all things. Would you stand with me as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.